Let's get started. Dr. Block, if you would come up and join me, we will sit down. I have a, lots of questions. You have not been shy. I, I don't know that we're going to get through all of them before we um, uh, uh, exhaust the, the, the ones that I have and then are able to open it up to the audience. If you think that there's a follow-up or something that you really want to talk about, just let me know and we'll, we'll get Bob on a microphone to come find you maybe. Um, first of all, thank you for coming and giving us the weekend. You, the, I think you had you know a dozen or more speaking times this weekend and that was really, really appreciated by all of us. So thank you so much. Thank you. Um, there's some very specific questions related to Old Testament studies, which I was very encouraged by, and some ones related to the worship. Uh, what I wanted to do is start more general and then go into that because um, nine times out of ten, when someone wants to begin a devotional process or exercise or begin quiet times, they turn somewhere between Matthew and Revelation. Not a bad place to turn at all. If you had just a few minutes to encourage the people in our church, we all believe that it's inspired, it's inerrant. Why the Older Testament is so not important, but invaluable and critical to their lives. What, what apologetic would you give them in wooing them to that section of our, path, of our scriptures? Every sermon has to have three points. <laughs> Number one, because it was important to Jesus. Jesus and the apostles only had that testament. And in their appeal to truth, it was appealed to that one. And if they did, I mean, Jesus defined his whole ministry in terms of the Old Testament. He is the fulfillment of that which it anticipates and calls for. So, if we want to be like Jesus, we should read the only Bible he had. Hmm. Second, we can't understand the New Testament if we don't understand the old. You interpret it as if it is dropped out of heaven without context. It is the climax of a story. It is not an alternative story. In a lot of our circles, that's how we view it. The Old Testament is the problem that the New Testament fixes. Think about that. Is the Old Testament revealed by God? Yes. Does God ever reveal anything that needs fixing? Probably not. What does it say about God if it needs fixing? That means that later writers cannot be fixing earlier writers. Think about it. Paul cannot fix Moses. Moses doesn't need fixing. Paul can fix wrong interpretations of Moses, but he can't fix Moses, or he's a false prophet himself. So that's uh, another reason. And there's so many things about the New Testament that we 
You wouldn't understand Hebrews if you didn't read Exodus and Leviticus. How could you understand that? We need to be immersed in the old that we can understand the vocabulary of the new. I mean, the text we took this morning, the lamb. I, I grew up on a farm. Lambs have connotations for me, but not that. What you see there, you cannot understand without recognizing the story. So, un unfortunately, we didn't have time to unpack all of that, but we assume a certain knowledge. But the third thing is, the Old Testament, and I prefer First Testament, mm -hmm. what you call something matters. It does. It sets an attitude. Try writing a book and then having it published. They're very careful about what you call it. They have a heavy hand in naming things for the glory of God. We got that one through. They were all right with it. But um, what you call something matters, and in our culture particularly, a word like old suggests antiquated, out of date, passe, irrelevant. We want the new. And that's a problem. So I prefer calling it the First Testament. But the, the other side of that one is that the First Testament has a message of itself that the original readers were to get. And they didn't have advantage of the new. They didn't have advantage of later Old Testament texts to clarify for them. So we always have to assume that the first meaning is the one that was intended for the first audience without the advantage of the rest. And when we get that, then we'll be able to figure out how it was used in later texts. But that's the living Word of God. Authorial intent is that which the first audience was supposed to get. And I think there is so much brilliant gospel in that that we miss out on three-quarters of the gospel in the Bible if you leave out the Old Testament. Perfect segue into the next question. You said a few times this morning, this weekend, something that could be um, uh, go a lot of different ways in interpretation. You, you spoke of the gospel of Moses. And when we think of gospel, we usually think of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and have a very uh, tight understanding of that. So uh, yeah. when you say the gospel of Moses. Well, gospel is good news, isn't it? What is the fundamental message Moses proclaims? Well, actually, God proclaims it at Mount Sinai. The good news that Moses proclaims to the Israelites in Egypt is God is getting us out of here. That's the gospel. That's the good news. And then they get to Sinai, and then, and then the Lord repeats the gospel. You've seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. That's gospel. And you see this all over. You see it in the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. It starts out with gospel. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. The rest of the commands are the response to gospel. We've experienced the grace. How then should we live? So, it, this gospel everywhere, and 
Read Exodus out loud. Hear the gospel. I am the Lord your... No, the Lord, Lord, gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love and kindness, who forgives every kind of sin. That's gospel. Leviticus 4, 5, and 6, your favorite texts. I mean, all of these, all the, all of these sacrifices... And we feel so sorry for the Israelites. How in the world are they supposed to remember all those details? But if you read it out loud, you will hear the refrain half a dozen, I think actually eight times, and they will be forgiven, and they will be forgiven, and they will be forgiven, and they will be forgiven. That's gospel. That's what everybody in the world needs. And in the ancient world, everybody wanted. Now, in our world, we don't want it because we don't know that we need forgiveness. Have you noticed that when you're trying to witness to people? You need to be saved. Saved from what? I didn't know I was lost. So the first thing we have to do is convince them that they're in trouble. And the second thing is give them the gospel. And that's what it, that's what it does. It's full of gospel all over the place. There's a particular text I can use for this. Have you read Deuteronomy 4 lately? I said before that Doug Moo, my colleague, friend, for any question give, you'll have an answer from Deuteronomy. <laughs> because there's gospel everywhere. You need to read aloud when you get home tonight, Deuteronomy chapter 4, the whole, the whole chapter. It's all gospel. The first eight verses is the grace of of Torah. The nations will say, what a wise and understanding people are you. For what great nation has a God so near and statutes so righteous as your whole Torah? What a privilege. What a gift. Not a burden. It's a privilege. Then verses 9 to 31, what nation has a covenant with God? He's called you to covenant relationship. And ultimately, Israel's destiny is guaranteed by God's fidelity to his covenant. That's gospel. But he's actually telling the story backwards. In, in verses 1 to 8, he tells us about the detailed revelation. That's a gift of grace. 9 to 31, it is the covenant. And then in 32 to 34, he summarizes the gospel. He actually tells the story backwards. Israel was saved first, then the covenant, then the detailed revelation. He wants, this is the end of the first sermon in the book, and he wants people to go to bed that night with a song of praise and thanksgiving on their, on their, on their lips for salvation. Here's the text. If you don't get excited about this, you're in a coma. <laughs> Look. Ask concerning the former days which were before you since the day that God created man on the earth. Inquire from one end of the heavens to the other. Has anything been done like this great thing or has anything been heard like it? And then he has a whole bunch of questions. And has anybody, anything that's happened like this happened? Has anybody told a story like this? Has any people heard the voice of God speaking from the midst of fire as you've heard it and survived? Or has any God tried to go to take for himself a nation from another nation by trials and signs and wonders and war, a mighty hand and outstretched arm and great terror? Seven words. When you see seven, it's an important deal. As the Lord your God did for you. To you it was shown that you might know that Yahweh, the Lord, he is God. There is no other. Out of the heavens he let you hear his voice to discipline you. On earth he let you see his great fire. And you heard his words from the midst of the fire. Because he loved your fathers. The gospel goes way back there. 
Because he loved the fathers, that's why he chose their descendants after them, and he personally brought you out of Egypt, driving from before you nations greater and mightier than you to bring you in and to give you the land as your grant. Know therefore today, take it to heart, that the Lord your God is in, in heaven. He is a God in heaven, and on earth below there is no other. So keep the statutes and the commands I am giving you, that it may go well with you. That's gospel too, and with your children. God guarantees well-being for those who respond to that gospel. But this is not just the B.C. gospel. As I was reading, did you see that this provides us with a vocabulary for the whole New Testament, the explanation of what Jesus has done for us. In my commentary on Deuteronomy, I have a, a Christian paraphrase of that passage. As a Christian, what does that mean to me? And let me read it. This is that text. Ask now of the days that are past, which were before you since the day God created humankind on the earth. Ask from one end of the heaven to another whether such a great thing as this has ever happened or ever been heard of. Did any people ever encounter their gods directly as you encountered him and still live? Has any god ever dared to invade the kingdom of darkness and take for himself a people from the midst of that kingdom by trials and signs and wonders and war and mighty hand, outstretched arm, by great deeds of terror? all of which Jesus Christ, your God, has done for you on the cross before your very eyes. To you it was shown that you might know that Jesus Christ is Yahweh, God. There is no other beside him. Out of the heavens he came as the divine word that he might reveal the Father to you. On earth he revealed his glory, the glories of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And he loved the ancestors and chose their descendants, including spiritual offspring like us, after them and brought us out of the kingdom of darkness by his great power, disarming rulers and authorities and putting them to open shame and triumphing over them. In order to grant us an inheritance that we might be, pre that since we have been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Know therefore today and lay it to heart that Jesus Christ is Yahweh. He is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. There is no other. Therefore walk in a manner worthy of Christ the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power, according to the glorious might for all endurance and patience, with joy and giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. I mean, that's our story. You can't understand that without understanding the B.C. story. It provides the vocabulary for this. What Jesus did for Israel is paradigmatic. Or what Yahweh did for Israel is paradigmatic of what Jesus does for us all. How can you understand that if we don't? How, how can you get excited about that if you've never read it? But there it is, as plain as the noses on our faces. It's the gospel. We, we need to read the Old Testament because the <clears throat> Old Testament is gospel. The Old Testament sounds dark because so much of it deals with an Israel that rejected the gospel. And God said, if you reject the gospel, this is what I'll, what I'll do. And so he keeps warning them patiently, graciously, come back, come back, come back. And when they refuse, then he judges. Hmm. 
Someone was uh, looking at your book and says, uh, please comment on the relationship of prayer to worship. I saw that your book had a chapter on this. Yeah. I think I, mean, I think I mentioned yesterday or this morning that prayer is the supreme act of worship, a verbal act. I mean, there are lots of other ways of worshiping, but what is prayer? Prayer is the human side of the divine conversation that He wants to have with us. And as our gracious Lord, he invites us. Talk to me. I'm talk to you. And so prayer is that reverent, a human act of reverence and homage before God, mm. recognizing that I don't deserve to be here, but by His grace. I can be as transparent as I want. And he hears. What great nation has a God like ours who hears us whenever we call upon him? So that a prayer of thanksgiving is the response of worship. A prayer of confession is the response of worship. A prayer of intercession is the response of worship. God invites us to cast all our cares upon Him. And this is our statement of trust and reverence and awe. We need Him. Without Him, we're lost. I think that's the way it works. Staying on the theme of worship, this is an interesting question. For the Christian, the moment of our death offers us the final opportunity for biblical earthly worship. Yet few of us today are uh, at that impending moment, and our death will come suddenly for some and deliberately, or we'll know it's coming for others. Would you speak to the subject of death as an act of Christian worship? I've mentioned before that I come from a huge family, which means you have an illustration for everything. Tell them again, you're number nine of 15, correct? Number nine of 15. Two of them died in infancy, so there were 13 that survived. My father used to say, I have six and a half dozen boys, each has one sister. You figure it out. <laughs> But I have an illustration of that on both sides of this coin. Both of these brothers of mine are in the presence of the Lord now. Both of them were involved in the ministry. There was a time in our family when eight of us guys were in the ministry. All of the others were in ministry too, but as lay people. But uh, by the grace of God, but one of my brothers had a very difficult life, and he struggled. Though he was in the ministry all his life, he struggled theologically with, with God. And with his family, which wasn't a healthy family, the kids had all sorts of problems. And 
One of the last conversations I had with him was at a restaurant up in Winnipeg shortly before his passing. He just wept. He said, why is your life together and mine is so, so fallen apart? And he suffered from kidney failure and leukemia and all kinds of things. And he died a very bitter man, angry with our parents. I mean, the glasses, the lenses in his glasses were so dark he couldn't see grace. On them. I felt so sorry for him. And my kids who watched this, I mean, here's a guy who's been in the ministry all his life, and it's been, he didn't die well. And my second brother, who passed away, is just the very opposite. His life was always together. I miss him. Because if ever there was anybody I needed to call, I need an upper. Call John. He's always there. And in the end, he died a painful death of lung cancer. Never smoked a day in his life, but he died of lung cancer. When he passed away at the funeral in Calgary, people from the hospital were there. And they are there to say, we miss him already. Because to the very end, every breath was an act of worship. Every day was a gift. Everything was grace. He was such a pleasant guy. The nurses kept talking about him. Never seen anything like this before. That's worship. Life is worship. Everything about him was to God be the glory. Great things. Not that his life was easy. I mean, he struggled tremendously in, li in life. His wife had, they finally dis diagnosed us as sad, seasonal adjusted disorder. And before they figured that one out, every, every fall, about this time of year, Halloween, she'd go into a funk and it would almost destroy his effectiveness as a minister. And for years he dealt with that, but never gave up. Never, I, I'm sure internally he, he, he struggled, but I mean outwardly, what a, what a godly man at work. And then of course when they figured out what was the problem, her life turned around and they know what to it's, it's manageable. And now that he's gone, she has a brilliant witness. And uh, this is the way I want to go. When I don't want to die a sour old man. God has been so good. Every day is grace. Every day. I mean, what am I doing here? Why me? Think about it. I've got 200 first cousins. <laughs> Why am I here? It is only grace. And to my dying day,
pray that my eyes would never be blinded to grace. I think that's, I mean, God is good. Who deserves, you know, I'm 39 now. What a gift. <laughs> who, des who deserves us? What? All of life is grace. So. Here's a great question. Since the Bible was meant to be heard corporately, yeah. it was written that way, as we know, it's largely an illiterate, illiterate or the idea of a, of a bound Bible that you own yourself is less than two centuries old, that anyone would have that. So since it was meant to be heard, how should a lay person interact with that principle in that Bible on a daily basis? Because they can read it. They, I mean, how, how does this You can work? read it. When I read the Bible for personal devotions, I never sit in a chair to read. When I sit in a chair, I'm too relaxed. I want to be engaged, and I get bored, and I yawn. I get up, and I walk the floor, and I read out loud, and I read slowly. And I try to hear the voices in Scripture. The Hebrew word for read is to cry out. Hmm. When I was in elementary school, a one-room elementary school, when I was about in grade seven, I guess, we had a teacher. He was a brutal man. Most effective teacher I had, but you're trying to teach the grade one and two kids. He was trying to teach the grade one and two kids to read. If they would so much as move their lips, he would discipline them because it slows you down. Really. When we're reading the Scriptures, you want to slow down. You don't need to read it. What's the hurry? I don't have a quota. Read it slowly, deliberately. When you're reading narrative, so much of the narrative is conversation. Have you noticed that? Take the book of Ruth. Take a felt marker. Cross out all the dialogue, everything between quotation marks. You've got half a page left, and you can't figure out the story. It's all in what people are saying. Take Deuteronomy. It's all speech, almost all of it. Take ex Genesis, the narratives of the patriarchs. It's how they're talking to each other. Hear the voice. Of course, take the prophets. That's all the voice. And take Psalms. This is all. Take the New Testament. Take the Gospels. It's all conversation. We need to hear it, not see it on a printed page. That's dead text. It needs to ring in our ears and get in there. And I think the more, the more senses we engage in our reading, the better it sticks, too. So we need to hear, we need to see, and if we could smell it. I don't know how that will work, but anyhow, the more senses, the better. The segue is incredible. Speaking of the senses, uh, uh, someone had a question, a very interesting question on... This business about um, God smelling burnt offerings. There's much to do about his sense of smell. And you were talking about God doesn't have 
yeah. you know, these senses, and yet it so often says that he's pleased or, yeah. or displeased by the aroma of these offerings. Now, we're at Barbecue City, so we understand the smell of meat. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is this business about the scent of an offering to God? And of course, Noah, after the flood, he, he brought the offerings, and it was a soothing aroma to God. Put yourself in that ancient world and try and understand it there. They would have got it because in pagan religion, pagan religion is all about the care and the feeding of the gods because you want to keep them happy. And if the gods are happy, they'll smile on you and bless you. The the original readers would have understood that perfectly. This is a metaphor of God's positive response to a human act of worship. Of course, God eats nothing. God doesn't need the offerings. The psalmist said, I own the cattle on a thousand hills. If I wanted the meat, I'd go and get that. I own it. It's mine. But of course, his physical well-being isn't, isn't it? This is, an, this is a metaphor for an, a, an expression of worship that's pleasing to God. The, the, the altar is actually called the table of the Lord. Ezekiel calls it that in one place, the table of the Lord. Does he have a table? Not really. But everybody would have understood that. The other thing we have to remember is that most offerings weren't burnt on the altar. Most offerings were eaten by the worshipers. The text in Deuteronomy read, Bring my offerings to me and come, celebrate in my presence and eat. God is the divine host, and, and, and the, people, the people bring their offerings, and he says, sit down, eat. And, of course, the priest would prepare it, and everybody eat. God loves the smell of people eating the gifts he's provided. I think there's that. Most offerings were fellowship offerings, and we forget that. And God loves the sight of his people in fellowship, in his presence. And he loves the smell of the food that they are eating. It's a wonderful family picture. Sons you are to the Lord your God. That's how Deuteronomy 14 starts with all the food laws. I don't think those are food laws. That's an invitation to the Lord's table. Come, eat, enjoy. We feel guilty if God is happy with what we're doing. No, he delights in us. <laughs> Someone's asking about this, uh, the head covering, the yarmulke in yeah. Jewish culture. Yeah. A little bit of the background. Obviously, in, in, in the Christian world, 1 Corinthians 11 speaks yeah. of something entirely different with mm-hmm. covering the, the, yeah. a, a man in his head. Yeah. But, but what is going on there culturally, and is there any, are there any biblical roots to it? Should we wear head coverings? 
some of you may have been here. Did we talk about baseball caps in class? Yes. On not, all, not all of you were here, but I mentioned that these days when students come to class, they wear baseball caps, and it doesn't even dawn on them that they, when they're in the presence of others, out of respect for them, you take it off. I mean, why do you need to wear a cap inside? It's a bad hair day. <laughs> I mean, where did we get that? You know, and so that, that in class, when we're studying scriptures, that is not an appropriate equivalent to the yarmulke, which out of respect they wear. I don't know the exact roots, but I can guess that it's a kind of shield. And we want to be careful to respect the boundary between us and God. This is not a casual thing. And in that cultural context, I, I, that's, what, that's what you did. I'm not saying that's what we should do. Of course, in New Testament times, women wore coverings out of deference to men. It's a cultural way of doing that. I grew up in a Mennonite home. And my mother almost always wore a hat to church. There came a time later on when they didn't, but, but the symbolic significance of these things changes, doesn't it, with, with time? And so I think that's one of those things. We need to go to the Scriptures to find our theology and then find culturally appropriate ways to de demonstrate that theology. I would never teach with a, well, I have on occasion preached with a baseball cap in my, on my head, <clears throat> but for a very pointed purpose. I was preaching on the second command of the Decalogue. To you it's the third command, but that's because the numbers are wrong. Luther had them right. Uh, the second, you shall not bear the name of the Lord your God in vain. What does that mean? We think it means don't cuss and swear, as if it's a verbal thing. But it isn't actually. It means you shall not wear it in vain. The brand. We bear the name of Christ. The, at Antioch, they were first called Christians, which meant that everywhere they go, they represented him. And to illustrate that, what that means, I wore a baseball cap with a big C on the front, Chicago Cubs. Well, if you wear a baseball cap with a big C on the front, in certain circles, it's not welcome. <laughs> I mean, the twins lost again. <laughs> uh, who did they lose to? If I would wear a cap here with a big T, it wouldn't go over so well. So, to illustrate the point, I mean, some of you are wearing shirts with, even mine has a logo. The people who made this shirt are no dummies. They want you to advertise wherever you go. And I'm a bit self-conscious about that logo.
But on the other hand, you know, and so I wore a baseball cap, only for a little while, and then I took it off because this is only an illustration. I lived with Ezekiel for too long, and if you live with Ezekiel, you figure it out. Whatever it takes to get a point across, and sometimes you have to do some goofy things. And so, for rhetorical effect, you do stuff. But it's never out of disrespect. There's a point. I wouldn't have worn a baseball cap this morning to preach, not even a Kansas City hat. <laughs> okay, this, this, you may not be interested in this, but I, I am deeply interested in I think the strangest verses or chapter in the entire Bible is Ezekiel chapter 1 with so much phenomenon going on there. I remember when I was a, a little uh, a, a youth, I was at a junior high camp with a well-meaning youth speaker yeah. who hadn't had a theological lesson in his life telling us that that was proof of UFOs. Um, so, uh, yeah. have you read Ezekiel 1 lately? Just read it tonight before you go to bed, and you may not go to sleep if you do. It's... Uh, there's a lot of things going on there. And, and the problem is that the English translations are far clearer than the Hebrew. <laughs> and that's the problem. <laughs> there are more problems per square inch on that page than anywhere else in the book of Ezekiel. One of the earliest essays that I presented at the official SPL, Society of Biblical Literature, was on chapter 1. And of, of course, critical scholars always think that this text is a mess because editors have added to it and whatever else. And so over time, it gets all jumbled up. There are grammatical problems. There are strange words that appear nowhere else. Things that are feminine are presented as masculine and Verbs that should be singular are plural, and they're incomplete sentences, and he jumps from one topic to the other. And, and then you've got all this language of, it looked like it had the appearance of, and the likeness of, and all the rest of it. And I, at the end of it, I'm saying, what in the world is going on here? You got the point. What in the world is going on here? This vision's come, vision comes out of the blue to Ezekiel in Babylon. The glory of the Lord shows up, and he's so stunned by it that he doesn't have vocabulary to describe it. And when we were translating the, translating the New Living Translation, we tried to give stuff the equivalent effect to a modern reader. My colleagues wouldn't let us break up these sentences and bits and pieces and chunks. I mean, there are places where it makes no sense, even in the Hebrew. And so, what are you going to do with it? But I think Ezekiel is such, at such a loss for words for, to describe this amazing thing. But the other side of it is, it's not only that it's indescribable, but when you, when you figure it out, all the images are pagan. In chapter 10, that image comes back, and now Ezekiel has a name for everything. 
There are no grammatical problems. 15 months later, it reappears. I know now what I'm talking about. I've had 15 months to think about this, and it's all clear. He talks about cherubim rather than living things, and he talks about casters rather than turning things. There's not a UFO. These, the, the bits and pieces of this image are all taken from what we now know of the iconography the images of pagan religion. And what happened, I wish, I, it is actually on my laptop. If I had known you'd ask the question, I'd show you a whole bunch of pictures from the ancient world where all of us, in, in, in class just two weeks ago we went through this text, where all of a sudden all this makes sense. Ezekiel's in Babylon. When you're in Babylon and your audience is so paganized, the only language they understand is pagan language, you see, all of this stuff, it's to beat the pagan ideas at their own game. So that at the end, you've got a platform with a, with a throne on which is a glorious image like the Son of Man. But underneath, you've got these other creatures holding up the throne. What's the point? The point is God alone is on the throne. And what other it spiritual beings there are, they are all there in support of Yahweh, the God of Israel. And if the judgment comes, and it will, it is not because God loses the battle with Marduk, the God of Babylon. It's because Marduk, or the Babylonians, come at the request, the invitation of God as his agents to do this. I mean, everything about that screams glory, sovereignty, majesty, brilliance, total control. Nothing happens by accident, or nothing happens because God betrays Israel, which is what the audience thought. It's a magnificent scene, actually. And if you had lived in Babylon with Ezekiel, you'd get it. But we haven't, and so, I mean, there's... What's his name? Well, Van Daniken stuff. It's Eric Blumrick is an engineer. He wrote a book on this. And he's an engineer, and he's got a picture on the cover of what he thinks it was. It's totally off base. Absolutely. It has nothing to do with UFOs. I, I wasn't suggesting it did. <laughs> no, but a lot of people think that. You ask the people that, you ask the question that a lot of people think. First thing, what is this, UFOs? No, it's not UFOs. It's the Lord in all his glory showing up in Babylon. And Ezekiel is saying, you don't belong here. You should be in the temple back in Jerusalem. What are you doing here? Hundreds of miles away from home. God says, I'm here for you. I'm here to talk to you. I've got a message for you. And that's Ezekiel's ordination to the priesthood. And after that, he can go and serve. His commission is right after it that. Is. So it's, mm -hmm. yeah. Okay, we have just a few minutes, and I, uh, I want to give you any curiosity questions that you want to ask. Uh, Bob, as a, as a roaming and roving mic, anything you want to ask Dr. Block can be about worship, Old Testament expertise. He does know the New Testament very well. Um, he's just a guest and a friend. Any questions? I have a few more I could ask, so. It's all clear. That's... 
when we do this with me, they say, what did you mean last week when yeah. you said so? I asked myself that. <laughs> what did I mean? Anything that's uh, burning on your mind about worship? There's one back there. I see it. Hang on, hang on, hang on. Wait till Bob's going to make you. haste your direction. I didn't do Can it. Do you think theologically that you butt heads with Wheaton about, or is there a direction of Wheaton, um, something that you support? Um, and would you recommend somebody go there? What was the question? The question is Wheaton. The theological direction of Wheaton is this a place you would support someone going there, or um, uh, so I think it was just a uh, temperature of Wheaton right now. I, those of you who are in, in, in academic world know what I'm talking about. I have, at Wheaton, I have tenure in my fourth institution. That's not true of most of my colleagues. Some have been there forever. There's a fourth school that I've been teaching, 10 years up at Providence, 12 in Minnesota at Bethel, 10 years at Southern, and now this is my 11th year at Wheaton. Nowhere have I been happier than where I am now. Wheaton's a very interesting place. I've become convinced that the hardest kind of institution on earth to run as a Christian is a Christian liberal arts college. The tensions of running a school like that are unbelievable. On the one hand, you want to be explicitly and overtly Christian in all that you do, openly so. And we've got a magnificent president, Phil Riken, who is unashamed, and he represents us so well everywhere. You'd be proud. You need to get him here to come speak to your congregation. You know, on the one hand, you know, we're committed to that. For Christ and his kingdom, that's our motto. Everybody has to sign on to that. Uh, the other side of it is, when you set your goals high academically, you want the best faculty, the best student, you're, you're asking people to think very seriously about all truth. And at a place like Wheaton, we believe all truth is God's truth. Whether it's special revelation, the scriptures, you know, so that we are officially on the inerrancy page and all the rest of that, we are there. Or, but the truth that's represented by general revelation, that's equally God's truth. And we need to search for truth in whatever, in, from whatever direction it comes at us. As an institution, that, those are our commitments. For Christ, everything we do is for Christ and his kingdom. Uh, that doesn't mean we're on the same page on every theological issue. And the moment, I mean, the easiest place to run is where everybody's on the same page. I mean, we're all five-point Calvinists, or we're all five-point anti-Calvinists, or whatever. You, you define your parameters tightly. That's easy to control. But when your commitment is to the general evangelical 
commitments, the Chicago Statement, whatever else. I mean, we're not committedly dispensationalists. We're not committedly covenant theologians and whatever else. The moment you allow variation, there are going to be some people who are going to have problems with where the colleagues are. Some people can work with only people who agree with them on every point. I happen to think that the, bio, uh, the, that the, the people of God, I'm glad they're not all like me. That would be awful. And there are some people who represent a balance to what I, you know, where, where I land on a lot of these things. So, not, I don't agree with everybody who's on our faculty on everything. And they don't agree with me on everything. And, uh, you know, I actually like that. At the core, our commitments are spot on. But when you get to the <clears throat> second and third tier of theological conviction, there's great latitude for, well, charity to people who don't agree with us. So, I, I, mean, I don't agree with everything that my colleagues in Old Testament do. I struggle with what some of them do. But on the other hand, the world is bigger than my narrow viewpoints, and um, we're all on a mission for God. And it's not a local church either. And it's not a local church, and I think this is what we... It is an arm of evangelicalism so that Anglicans send their Episcopalians send their students to us, and Lutherans send their students to us, and Baptists and independent churches and Presbyterians, they send our their students to us. It's not a denominational school, but it is an explicitly evangelical school. And this was witnessed to this last week on Thursday night. I think, I, I know, I, did we talk about it here? We did on Saturday, on, on um, Saturday, the forum you held. There's a new film out by Patterns of Evidence on the Exodus, in which the people who produced the film are arguing that the date of the, there is evidence for the Exodus if you date it about uh, 1650 BC, and so it's totally convincing to people who are looking for proof of the Exodus. The only trouble is it doesn't fit a lot of other data. And so we, at Wheaton, we talk about these things. It's been in the movie theaters. I went to see, with, see it with uh, one of my PhD students from Beijing. He was totally sucked in by it. It is that convincing, absolutely. But we had two of our colleagues, an e Egyptologist who used to be on our faculty, is now at Trinity, a good friend of mine, Jim Hoffmeyer, who knows more about Egyptology than any other American evangelical. He's as conservative as they come. And my, and my colleague, Daniel Master, who knows more about Palestinian archaeology than anybody I know. He's as conservative. We're in the same church, and, you know, is as conservative as they come. On the one hand, we get this presentation in the movie that this is, there is proof of the Exodus. If you date it 1650, these guys come along and say, that's absolutely, it doesn't work. You do the carbon-14 dating, and they can pull up all the, the guys who produced the, 
the film are not archaeologists. The, the main character is a movie producer, is a Christian from Minnesota, wonderful guy. And I don't question their, I don't question their spiritual commitments. I'm, I'm happy when we do this kind of thing. But on the other hand, Wheaton is the kind of place where you can talk about it on the one hand and on the other hand. It's very interesting because that film is too... I, I encourage you to watch it. It's on Netflix. You can pick it up. Uh, Patterns of Evidence. The film is two hours long. After the film, the two experts in archaeology actually gave their responses. I had an email note from a colleague today who is doing, um, teaching a series of lessons in a local Baptist church. The pastor of that Baptist church saw the movie. He didn't stay for the question and answers. So she wrote me, sent me an email and said, this is the word out there. It sounds like you were promoting that <clears throat> viewpoint. No. It's a campus where alternative viewpoints can be expressed and we debate. What a brilliant opportunity for our students to see how we look at evidence. And on the one hand, it can be so convincing, but on the other, if you look at it another way, oh, once you get all the facts in, it's a brilliant opportunity for an educational experience. This, this is Wheaton. There's a difference between an institution whose mission is the defense of truth that's a safe place. And an institution whose mission is the search for truth. That's different. It, it. And between you and me, I find the second kind of institution more exciting. If all the answers were, I mean, a lot of my conclusions about the Scriptures, discovering the gospel in the Old Testament, how did that happen? By searching for truth. And all of a sudden it comes alive for me. And this is what happens when, when we're engaged in that enterprise. So, uh, whatever, whatever way. To, but um, that's a long answer to it. I know there are a lot of questions. And when I was contemplating going to Wheaton, I got all kinds of people saying, you're going to the lat liberal school? Really? What I discovered there when I got there is this place is far more conservative than I expected. It is, you know, at, and at every level. So. Well, thank you all for coming. I'm going to let you relieve the people downstairs. So we keep saying this, but I just want to highlight that uh, as our church is growing, then the, the stresses that happen downstairs with the nursery, the children continue to grow. For those of you who do serve and have served, I want to thank you, but for those of you who, uh, who aren't doing that tonight, I want the people to thank you for going to get your children fast so um, that they can get up in fellowship as well. And uh, Dr. Block, thank you for giving us a weekend 
and this is an enormously busy time in his life. We actually tried to arrange it a few months ago because thinking this was the better date. Yes. And then it ended up being the more complicated date for you. Yeah. So. Well, can I just say another thing? I mean, how many people have we got here? We've got 300 people here. Where else would this happen? You folks are amazing. I will go home with a song of praise on my lips to God for what is happening here. I, I mean, it's been heavy fun, but I will go back so energized because God is at work. You have ministered to me. I can't believe that anybody would come listen. Here you are again. How many hours have some of us spent together? You're so sweet. Thank you so much. Thank you for encouraging your pastor and his wife and the other pastoral staff. Don't take this for granted. This is rare. You've got a treasure here. You've got a, a recipe. And it all relates to centrality of the Scriptures for everything that we do. And if I have been an encouragement to you on that count, all glory be to God for the praise of His glory. Amen.